Hello and welcome to Analyzing Finance with Nick. In today's video, we are going to do the economic future of China. And since China is such a big country with a lot of complexities, I figured I'd bring on a guest, uh, Chris Street, to join us to discuss what's going on in China right now, especially with how international media has largely been closed off to the country. It's often difficult to discern that. So the first thing I want to talk ask Chris, what are your overall thoughts on the economic future of China? Is it the next doomer country? Uh, I would say, does the term bad, badder, and baddest, you know, sort of sum up the problem that China has? China has a demographic bomb that exploded 10 years ago. Um, in 2018, they had more people 65 and over than they had 18 and under. So China, China is a country that was you know, that, that originally it was expected they would lose up to half of their population by 2070. That could now happen by 2050. Yeah, this year was the first year I think they've had a decline in population since the Great Leap Forward, if I'm not. Well, yeah. remember that uh, they had their census? And one of the problems with the census is that they had 1.4 million people, only they couldn't find 100 million people, mostly young women, because they were aborted secretly. Ah, so when you look at the numbers of China, it's really closer to 1.3, 1.28. It is the first year that it theoretically is declining, but they forgot to tell you about the 100 million people they didn't have. I kind of like it. You don't need to have an algorithm for this. You need arithmetic. <laughs> but um... let's once a woman's over 40, you know, not only does the desire, but the capability to have children diminishes rapidly. So the next question then is, in the long term, the demographics seem to be a problem. But in the short term, there's a lot of hope, particularly among Wall Street, about this upcoming reopening of China's economy after they've been effectively locked down due to um, overbearing COVID restrictions for the last year and a half. So do you think that this is just going to be a sugar high or is just going to be a resumption of pre-COVID trend growth in China? Well, pre-COVID trend growth in China, you know, was probably something like 4% to start with instead of the seven or eight that they talk about, because they have this thing called, you know, um, presenting your numbers to your boss. And if they turn out to be bad in China, you get, there's real retaliation if you give me bad information. So it is most convenient in China to give me good information. So it's not that they lie at the top. They make sure that the information that comes to them is structured. So when you, you talk about China coming back, um, you know, take a look at the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles. I mean, there are 49 berths and, you know, 10 to 14 are filled uh, on any given day. And usually one of those is a cruise ship and one's a tanker. So, you know, wh where was this three years ago? I thought it was packed. You're, you're kind of already past that, you know, sugar high, because um, I think it already, to a great degree, already opened. They, you know, they locked the people into the businesses. They started production. You know, they made sure they got, you know, overtime and produce supply chain. Now the real issue is, can they sustain it? So if that is the case, 
why have you seen such explosive rallies in China proxies such as iron ore futures, countries that exports rely on China and copper, if they're or and and retail outlets who have a large percentage of their um, stores in China, if there isn't anything to this reopening. Well, I think you ran down your stocks, didn't you? I mean, when you sort of shut down the place, you ran down their inventory. So you had that bullwhip effect, you know, where all of a sudden you've got to get a lot of iron ore, you got to get a lot of copper, you got to get a lot of everything. And then usually what happens is you get too much of it. And we saw a little bit of this last at the end of last year in the United States, the, the first quarter, um, where people actually had too much in the way of inventory. So I think in China, you know, I, I understand the statistics say one thing, and I'm saying a little bit of the other. I, I don't think we disagree. I just think the statistics that people get in China, they don't understand the process. So what would look like something in the United States is a trend. You know, in China, it was a, you know, uh, a CCP decision. So what would it take to get back to pre-COVID trend growth? Um, the actual, not whatever the government was posting during the time, and is it if is, what is it? And if there is a, if it is possible, what is the pathway to do that? Well, I, I think that they need to open immigration and take in fifty million people. Because culturally, that can never happen in China. You know, it's a, a, a very um, inward-looking culture. They're very proud of their culture. They have a long history. But you know, in China, every time there's the end of a dynasty. 100 million people lose their head. You know, everybody associated with the last pattern, you know, pretty much gets chopped off all the way down to their family member. Uh, and then we go forward. You know, Xi Jinping understands China. He understands that China is never going to be a liberal democracy. And anytime that it is perceived that China is failing and the CCP is in power, you know, it, it could be his family that's part of that 100 million heads. So if China is not going to return to pre-trend, uh, pre-COVID trend growth for the for an foreseeable future, then how long is it going to take for financial markets to realize that this reopening narrative is false? And um, how and also how long? What kind of data point would confirm to you that the reopening narrative is true? And what data points would have to come out to confirm that the reopening narrative is false? Well, I, I, I get lots of information from people that actually run factories in, in China. And what I'm told is business is better, not this fantastic rebound people are talking about. Since the COVID started, you realize that there has this thing called competition. Now take a look today at, the, at, at semiconductors. You know, I thought semiconductors were going to be a disaster. You know, we're not going to sell any of the high-end ones in China, and they've been shut down, so it's not available. I mean, it, it, we are flooded with medium and low-end semiconductors. Uh, there's too much supply and not enough demand. I mean, doesn't that tell you that one of the key processes in China, you know, is, is already signaling lack of demand going forward? So... Then, but yeah, but I mean, I'm talking about just like more about like hard data in terms of economic things that the financial markets will recognize as the, oh, well, this I, thing is not happening. 
I, I think that's really the problem, Nick, is that real data isn't real. <laughs> the data that Wall Street looks at, you know, is very massaged. You know, you can get this data if you, you know, there's, I, I one of the best people I get it for is I pay $10,000 a year and get a noto economics. You want to get detailed issues and, you know, uh, of, of China, uh, you know, pay $10,000 and I'll get you, you know, some some people who really understand what's going on the ground and, you know, and, and they work for, you know, the multinationals. Uh, it's, it's an expensive, you know, online service. And, you know, it, I think it's worth every penny. But, you know, that remember that China is a banking story, not necessarily a production story. China had, you know, tremendous uh, savings that was prevented from going into international markets. So it went into their bank system. And if it goes in their bank system with fractional banking, you know, the, the banking system of China, as far as deposits, got larger than, you know, I, I would say that the EU uh, and maybe Japan together. Uh, and when you have that kind of a concentration of deposits, fractional banking can leverage it way, way up, right? But they never had Dodd-Frank in China. They never had a requirement to deleverage the banking system down to, you know, essentially with um, something like 13 to one. That's what America's banking system was deleveraged down from 25 to one to 13 to one. That means from, you know, 25 dividing into 100 cents means four cents of collateral down to closer to seven cents of collateral. In China, it is officially three cents of collateral and probably more like two. So this multiplier on the way up is now becoming a multiplier on the way down. So the, the government is allowing greater and greater amounts of leverage in, in organizations like the like local government, which historically have been, you know, the biggest part of the problem. They have, you know, they've they've whipped the banks into doing transactions. So I, I think that um there's there, they've sort of played out that game to the extreme. You know, there's I believe there's something like um uh 90 million empty apartments in China. Now remember an empty apartment in China means somebody owns it. But the way it works is when you buy an apartment, you don't buy the apartment, you buy the right to lease it for 70 years. And you know, the 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 common trade is I don't get rent on that because I don't actually put anybody in there. I, I don't think that there's any more bandwidth for you know the banks to expand and the real estate to expand. And you know, the more the real estate expands, the more collateral the banks have, the more you expand the economy. So I think that, you know, that uh, uh, escalator is turning into the express uh, elevator on the downside. And then also the other question is from the longer term health of China's economy. How much of the lying flat movement affecting things and how strong is the lying flat movement? We saw a lot about in the news last summer, but I haven't really seen any updates on it since. Well, this is the problem. You know, in, in China, they are desperate for, you know, for competent workers. The problem is, you know, they're going to lose, you know, something, something around 20 million per year. You know, these are people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s that actually know how to do something, you know, very skilled. And they hit, you know, they hit 65. And in China, you know, they smoke, they have, 
you know, they have bad diet, they have all that kind of stuff. So they're, you know, their longevity, you know, is curtailed by uh, the, 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 the customs, uh, the food and the rest of it. So these people who are lying flat, these young people, they don't have productive skills. They can't come in immediately and create, you know, some advantage to a company. You know, the, the companies were, you know, the, the attitude was the companies take them and carry them. And then eventually they, you know, take the spot of the guy above them and above. Um, but I think it's not expanding and lying flat doesn't necessarily, you know, mean they have no ambition. It means they have little or no opportunity. I thought it was more of a voluntary opt-out for people working at tech companies like Alibaba because of the work culture and the relative low pay versus housing costs and other expenses needed to get married. Or is I off? I'm not buying that. I'm, you know, in China, one of the problems if you're going to get married is you got to buy the wife. You know, and yeah, that, you gotta that buy a house, it. and if you're making only two thousand dollars a month, you can't afford that. So what's the point? Well, you have to buy the wife too. <laughs> you know, in the old days, you married a woman, you got a dowry. In the modern days, you got to pay up in those cases. You got to, you know, the, the family expects to get something. If they've carried this daughter, which will never get, be a retirement fund for them, you know, they, they really expect to get money. You got to give them something. So there's, you know, I mean, one of the problems of having families is how many women are there to men? You know, I think it's, a, you know, 1.4, 1.5 men to women. Uh, the I saw was about 1.17. No, much much higher than that. Much much higher than that. That that I'm ta I'm talking about those in the uh, those in the the marriable category. So like twenty to forty, then it may is that yeah, about one point two to well closer to one point four. I think it might you knock it down from there. But the bottom line to it is, you know, there's too many men and not enough women, and you know the the women don't have to you know they they can choose lifestyle changes because they have an opportunity to shop who they're going to be with um you know part of that is i don't want to work in a you know assembly line i want to be a you know a, a homemaker that's a big in china if you you know have your child or two childs and you have you take care of the house and you don't have to work like everybody else it's, it's quite compelling but as i said you know it, it is there's a limited stock of that. There's a limited opportunity. Everything is expensive. You know, if your parents don't provide you that apartment, you know, and you're a regular person, as you said, you got to go out and pay for it. Um, all, all of this is, you know, is, is economics 101 um, for failure. So do you, so how is this going to affect the, the population chart? Is it going to accelerate the demographic decline? But I, I think it's all it is in the demographics, it's not that they're lazy. It's not that they're different. It's just this is the world that's presented to them. I mean, if 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 I'm a if I'm a tech worker and I'm working you know, 15 hours, 16 hours a week a day rather and, you know, six days a week is common and I have zero upside, you know, I'm probably going to play some video games and hang out. Maybe it'd be nice to go sleep in my parents house. What, whatever the deal is. There's just not the normal reward structure or the rewards are beyond my means and capability. I mean, you, you've got to, if, if you're one of those people that is making big money, well, everything comes to you. But if you make just regular money and you're not the most attractive guy and you don't have the best parents, you don't have the best, you know, gifts to give, um, 
you're, you're kind of not going to have those rewards. I mean, does this impact political stability at all? Why do you think they're hammering down? I mean, in China, in China, they're hammering, you know, the Alibaba guys and things like that. People, the rich, the, the rich are supposed to now give back, you know, uh, I forget what the term they use for it. It's, um, um, it's not, it, it's not, uh, it's not government share. There's a term they give where you're supposed to donate back to the, to the Chinese government, a portion of your company, you know, um, that's the wealth tax, basically. Well, it's it's just you know there are alternatives, you know, to not doing that, which are all bad. So call it a wealth tax or call it a expropriation, but that's the that's the game. And then the other question I have for the long term future of China, because I did a report about the economic future of Taiwan about four months ago. And you look at the GDP per capita of Taiwan versus the GDP per capita of the mainland since um, the departure of Mao. And Taiwan has accelerated a lot faster. And as their living standards are over three times that of the mainland. Uh, and they and the only real difference are the same people, pretty much, in terms of culture and ethnicity and history up to that point. To the up to the revolution and the wars, but Taiwan's economy is a lot more prosperous, and the average living standards are in line with most first world countries, where that is not the same in China. Could you argue that the CCP itself is the reason why that China's economic performance has not been even better? And would China be a more prosperous and geopolitically dangerous country if it was run more like Taiwan? Um, you know, there was a vacation from communism, you know, that uh, allowed this sort of economic entrepreneurial spirit to flourish. Um, but even during this, you know, uh, entrepreneurial spirit that flourished, remember what they started with. When, uh, you know, when the, when the Chinese communists won, um, they really won. You know, with the people in the rural areas coming in to fight the people in the cities. It, uh, you know, uh, Mao originally was an elitist and had a rebellion in, in 1928 in the cities. And they absolutely got stopped because city people have things to lose. And, you know, they don't want to fight to the bitter end, you know, the way that rural people. Remember, he went through his long march. And then he organized the countryside and the countryside, you know, the, the, the hundred years of shame in China were a hundred years of shame in China for the countryside. But if you took a look at the port cities, you know, the Guangzhou's you know, the Hong Kong's, you know, the, the Shanghai's, um, it was glorious riches and, and fun, you know, when they were doing this interface with the Western world, you know, they had this great business it was just absolutely booming. They, you know, they, the, you, you had about, you know, 20% of the Chinese society that loved the foreigners because we would trade with them. That was a great opportunity and, you know, a great wealth builder. But the other 80% of the country on the, the rural, uh, you know, suffered badly because they were the donkeys for that structure. Um, so, at, so as the revolution was succeeding, remember that, um, in 47, the communists had been beaten, 
And it, it looked like the Comitain, which is the old party, um, uh, what was in the process of defeating them and just, you know, almost exactly like Cuba, they went too far, stretched their lines of supply out too far and, you know, got beat. And what looked like a, you know, great victory for the United States foreign policy, you know, in, in uh, stuffing the Chinese in China flipped. And so it happened so fast and they headed for the cities. If you were in the cities, you know, you knew you were going to go to re-education camps. And so a lot of those very productive, educated, you know, elitist people, they all got in the boat and went to Taiwan. That's, I mean, seeding that kind of population, you know, creates a, would create a boom anywhere in the world. So you're saying it's a immigration selection bias that explains <laughs> Taiwan's performance. It's a good way to put it, isn't it? You know, we, we you know, instead of taking the low, we take the high. Well, I'm also going to explain the success of the United States, too in a way like well at least with legal immigration we tend to take the top people from a lot of other countries right well um, it, it, the united states is different because the united states has what no other country in the world has we have water everywhere you know we have resources everywhere we're just not like anybody else we're this island you know with the, the largest amount of water you know uh, usage per person on the planet by far um, and that pretty much, you know, makes up for a lot of the selection errors and things like that. I mean, we're still, if you, if you take a look at the United States, the carrying capacity of the United States is probably at least twice what it is right now. You go to places like Europe and in, in China where you have this only, you know, this, this you know, th what they call the 15-inch isoset line, that line where, where water, you get rainfall of 15 inches or more on this side. You know, that's only about 40% of the country. Yeah. Uh, that's also, they have a similar thing. I think it's the 100th meridian in the U.S. Right, exactly. Like 80% like of the population lives east of that. Well, on one side of the population, the 100th meridian in the United States, you have rain. of, And on the other side, you, you have 15 to 20 inches of rain. That's above the 15-inch sort of, you know, you can't grow crops. So you can grow crops there, but you also have um, gigantic aquifers under the United States, you know, and, and you can drill for that. So pretty much that thousand square, that thousand square mile block of the United States, you know, can, you know, can can grow things or, or, or you know, raise animals um, easily compared to the rest of the world. So back to China, though, so like if China adopted something more like a multi-party state, would it be viable there? For about an hour and a half. And why do you be say revolutionary? That? It would be revolutionary. But why wouldn't it why would it fail? That's well, because you 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 would take the cork out of the bottle to do that. And then all all of this history of China, you know, all, all of these disparate China used to have like seven different you know, warlords and, you know, they'd get along and then they'd fight and then they'd get along and then they'd fight and they'd, you know, you know, each time they'd fight somebody, you know, one part of them would get killed and then you get a, you know, the Chinese communists were the first people that actually, you know, killed all of the warlords and then turned around and installed their own warlords. Um, uh, remember Ten uh, Tiananmen Square, uh, uh, you know, the protests in Tiananmen Square in China? Um, 
there was an army coming from the south that was actually marching towards Beijing. Um, and they cut a deal and those people went back to barracks. Um, but China still is very difficult to control. It is, you, you, it is not going to be a liberal democracy. That would just be, in, unless you're willing to let them fight it out for 20 years or so, and then we'll get down to what can be a liberal democracy. I, I think that they're going to be a dictatorial state uh, in between periods of chaos. Yeah, but I, I mean, I could see where you're coming from with the history of their dynastic politics, but how come every other country in East Asia, with the exception of North Korea, has been able to transition to a more democratic society? Well, I think part of that also has to do with the fact that they had an enemy. Remember that there was a, this was the gig, right? You know, the United States created the New World Order after World War II. And in the New World Order, um, we were looking for teams that hadn't picked a side. About a third of the world had gone communist. And, you know, the United States woke up one day and said, huh, how'd this happen? After China flipped, they adopted a strategy to use the United States Navy and use the United States resources. We had about 60% of all the gold in the world, 62%, I think it is, after World War II. And we created these, you know, we created Bretton Woods and we created these ABC institutions like the International Monetary Fund and the Bank for International Settlements. And we seeded this with golden power, but it was really the United States golden power. And at one point, I think we had you know, real forces in 152 countries. You know, you look at the deployments now, we, we still have a lot of places that we call deployments, but we don't have that kind of, you know, that, that kind, we haven't had that kind of, you know, manning out there for 30 years. And our Navy, you know, th there was a day when, you know, uh, aircraft carriers, uh, just a few of them could control the world. Um, they're kind of like sitting ducks now. I mean, they're just not as dominant as they were. And and pretty much what's happening is America is going back home and the new world order um, is dying because it's not valuable to the United States. If it's not valuable to the United States, start watching what happens to these, you know, these societies and in Asia that you think now are liberal democracies. I you know, we'll see what happens. So then speaking of the U.S. pulling back, how is China going to adapt to onshoring by America and its allies? Complete disaster. It's it's already in the process of happening. As I said, you know, remember semiconductor chips were supposed to be the, you know, the supposed to end, you know, the, the tech industry in the United States without China, you, you know, just, well, now you have too many chips and pretty soon you're going to have too many high end chips. And then, you know, what's going to happen? You're going to need have to have higher end chips than higher end chips. So, you know, this, the, the tech industry replatforms every three to five years. They have modern factories, not because they want to, but because they have to. So, you know, putting the, you can put these, you, you can change your mind pretty damn fast. And what we're seeing right now is, uh, is already playing forward that companies are not so sure 
that China is the future and have at least, you know, uh, diversified, you know, their production, if, if not a lot of them moving to India and more importantly, you know, moving back to North America, you know, I, I think it was 2019, um, Mexico became the largest trading partner of the United States. That the future is North America. So then are you basically just seems like it's pretty doom and gloom with your outlook for China. And it basically seems like to me, and this is what the financial markets are implying through PE ratios of Chinese stocks right now, is that China is going to turn into what happened to Russia prior to its invasion of Ukraine. Well, I, I, I think that part of that story is true. You know, the, the consumer market of China, of Russia, that Russia is going to be a source of low labor costs and, you know, would, would, you know, would be part of the supply chain for um, Europe was a big disaster. I mean, Putin, you know, was, was a member of the uh, KGB and he was driving a taxi at night and living with his parents, right? He and his wife, because they were that low. You know, um, the idea that you would turn them into a liberal democracy and they would have, you know, consumption like the rest of the world was a complete failure. Russia flipped. And this has been the big aha moment for American foreign policy. Russia flipped back to being a successful resource based economy. And that's turned out to be very compelling. And in the future, it probably is resources that are, you know, the, the the currency of the future. It's it's not necessarily semiconductor ships. Yeah, but China doesn't have enough natural resources to support its own production and feed its own population. So that's right. Exactly that's exactly right. Without trade, China is done. Um and you know they can they can huff and puff and do all that kind of stuff. But the bottom line to it is They'll never get past the Malacan Straits, right? They'll they'll never get. I mean, to to go to invade Taiwan, you'd have to tra- cross 120 miles of water. You know, we're not talking about paratroopers. You know, millions of paratroopers coming in the sky. Those things would be blown out. They have the equivalent of shotgun type weapons that would blow out every kind of air transport coming over. So you have to come over by water, and coming over by water, you'd you'd lose almost everybody on the way over. So I, I, I don't, I'm not saying that China won't try because the problem China has, it's, it's in a revolutionary environment um, and they may need to try. But, you know, if, if China tries and the, CCC, the CCP fails, well, that revolution then turns on them. So I'm, I, I don't think there's any r- real answer for China's problem other than the die-off that's taking place right now. Remember that if they lose half their population, even if they're older, they'll have half the number of people to feed. I mean, that's just the, that's the Malthusian. (laughs) Well, if China needs resources, why don't they just go and march on the Russian Far East? They outnumber them 15 to one. Anybody who underestimates the Russian, it's been to their doom. You know, it's the Russians probably, and you know, I'm older than you are. I've, you know, I, I uh, have been involved in a lot of technology issues and such like that. I, I want to tell you, if you didn't have the Cold War 
you know, um, a Soviet Union scientist would have probably won most of the Nobel Prizes in physics. Of course, they couldn't publish, right? But, you know, this is a country, a very well-educated country, you know, with a long history of, you know, of, of, of science and technology. And, you know, the things they made, you know, the things they made were straight up to the United States in the Cold War, right, as far as technology. Um, what, did they steal them or did they get them or did they make them? I, I think all of the above. I mean, remember that the United States and all of Europe just had a financial war with China. And I think at this point, it's fair to say that the United States and, and Europe ran out of tools. They haven't lost the financial war yet, but they're on the but they're closer to losing the financial war than you know putting Russia back in a trash compactor. So then based on all you're saying, what is your outlook for China and next year in 2025 and then 2030 and beyond? Well, I think for the next two years, you could get a good economic balance. You're going to see, I always watch the C, CSI 300 because that is the, you know, that, that is the, those are the 300 country companies that uh, the CCP cares about the price. And if it, they've started to trade up on it. You've seen a breakout here. I mean, is it, it's, it's the perfect, it's the perfect basket for a technician to trade off of because it is policy oriented. If, if the government decides they want all of the pension plans to put money in those stocks, up they go. And, and that's been the policy in the last three months. You know, they had they just broke out. It took a while to turn it around. But, you know, this is a, um, you know, this is a, this is the last mating call of the dinosaurs before the meteor augers in. And you expect that to hit mid-decade? I think that's going to hit within two years. I think that the, there'll be a radical, and, and then all hell breaks loose. Either breaks loose internally, externally, whatever whatever that hell is this time, you know, you're you're coming up to that event. I mean, I, I don't doubt they they could think about, you know, invading Taiwan for the simple fact that, you know, it's it's a value to have a good distraction, right? I mean, they, they need they need something tremendous to convince the people, uh, you know, that, that 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 they're they're melting away. And you know, if you're a young person, maybe you you're the you're laying flat right now. But laying flat people have a nasty habit of eventually turning into revolutionaries. They get mad. They get angry. They get mean. They get resentful. They get even. So now that you we've kind of covered everything on China and California. Do you have any final notes or things you'd like to say about the economic future of China before we wrap this up? Uh, China is going to go through 10 to 12 years of total crisis. Um, if they somehow manage to, 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 you know, to compress it and stop it from turning into violent revolution, they will have been artful. Um, normally, these things are nasty. Um, and then it'll kind of, you know, reprogram itself and come back kind of to the way it was from the 1850s to the, you know, to the uh, 1930s when, you know, you had the coastal cities, which are very productive and, 
you know, and, and modern, and you have the interior, which is, you know, very interior and not modern. And I think, you know, on, on, on a population uh, crash, there's a, there's a carrying capability for China. I know people don't read about Malthus and people like that anymore. You know, we're in the modern world where, ever, where somebody's able to move the levers and we, we get the answers. I, I don't think there's levers and answers here. All right. Thank you for joining us, Chris. And we look forward to having you back in the future. Thanks a lot, Nick.